Welcome again everyone to Cold Cases from Every State. As per usual, I asked you all what cases I should cover, and tonight we're focusing on Maine. I've chosen from three of your suggestions. With Maine being one of the least populated states in the U.S., there was a shocking amount to choose from. But that's neither here nor there. Let's begin. The Case of Mary Catherine Olinchuk Mary Olinchuk was born on November 18, 1956. From what I can see, she lived a fairly simple life in Agunquit, Maine, up until August 9, 1970, the day she went missing. It was on that day Mary, her mother, and her sisters were spending their day at Little Beach near their summer home. At some point, Mary decided she wanted something sweet, and so she took a friend's bike to their house to change from her bathing suit. She put on a pair of faded pink Wrangler shorts and a white t-shirt. As Mary was heading into town, she stopped in front of the Lookout Hotel, which was reportedly just 200 yards away from her home's front door. Reports from witnesses at the time say they saw Mary speaking with a white man in his 30s who was dressed in dark clothes, driving a maroon car with scratches atop the hood. While they weren't certain, it was believed to be a 1967 Chevrolet. One witness claimed they looked away for a second, and when they looked back, she was getting into the car with this man, leaving the bicycle behind. Friends and family have said that this was... Friends and family have said that this would be unusual behavior for Mary. She was said to be incredibly shy and would have never gotten into a car with someone she did not know or trust. Of course, this is why it was believed Mary knew who her abductor was. Mary's abduction was reported to the police, though not to the public, until two days after. The police, as well as Mary's parents, were under the impression they'd received some kind of ransom call. This never came, and so Mary's abduction was made public. Given the father's involvement in the military, he was a brigadier general, the military, FBI, and local police became involved. Flyers with Mary's smiling face were placed not only in Maine, but in other various states as well. Flyers were placed as far south as Delaware and even up north into Canada. Two weeks passed, and the idea that Mary would be found alive began looking less plausible. A police officer's daughter said there was a strange smell coming from a nearby farm in Kennebunk, 10 miles from where Mary was last seen. Upon investigation, Mary's body was discovered, covered up by piles of hay. She'd been strangled by lobster wrap, which is a rope with about a quarter-inch diameter. There was no sign of sexual assault. There were no leads early into the investigation, and honestly, nothing much to this day. One young man, 16-year-old Bob Walsh, came forward to report that he heard rustling in the barn around 1.30 or 2 in the morning as he and his friend were dropping off their fishing gear. He said he noticed a car near his family's motel just a few hundred yards away, start up, and then drive to the nearby intersection. It idled for a short time and then drove off. Despite Bob never owning a car or even a license, locals began to call him Killer Bob, insinuating that he had something to do with the abduction or with taking Mary's life. There is no such evidence to support this theory. The one theory that everyone comes back to with being plausible is that someone did not agree with what Mary's father was doing. As we said, her father was a brigadier general in the army. He was placed in charge of Operation Chase. Operation Chase, which stands for Cut Holes and Sink 'em, 
was one of the largest controversies of the time. The operation involved encasing 3,000 tons of nerve gas rockets in concrete and dumping them into the ocean just off the coast of Florida. Many opposed this idea, but one student group from Kentucky stands out above all the others. It was reported that this group claimed they would kidnap the families involved in the operation. This was partly why the police had waited two days for a ransom call that never came. Furthermore, this threat came just a day before Mary was abducted. While this is quite the theory, some online don't believe it. Many point out that the threat came just one day before the abduction, meaning there wouldn't be much time to plan something as risky as a kidnapping. As of now, there have been no more tips that lead to large developments since. Both of Mary's parents have passed away, and this case seems to have been sitting dormant for nearly 50 years. Police are, of course, asking for anyone with helpful information regarding this case to come forward and report it. You can do so... <clears throat> you can do so by contacting the Maine State Police Maine Crimes Unit South at one 800 228 0857. The Case of Kim Moreau Kim's case begins in the town of Jay in western Maine, a small town of around 4,500 residents. It was on the 9th of May 1986, Kim was only 17, and she left her home and was never seen again. According to Kim's father, Richard, she was wearing a white blouse, blue jeans, and white top sneakers. She had a necklace with her boyfriend's class ring engraved into it reading, Mike 87. That day, Kim's father said that Kim and a friend, Rhonda Brayton, were out with two of their male friends who were both in their 20s following their plans for prom being canceled. Later that night, around 11 p.m., Kim showed up at home for a short time before heading back out with one of the young men who were with her and Rhonda that night. It hasn't been reported who was driving the car or if they were alone, but one of the men, Brian Enman, became a person of interest not too long ago. It begins in August of 2015, just a few months after the 29-year anniversary of Kim's abduction. Brian's property and the area around it were searched extensively, as it was believed there may have been something for the police to find. Over the next four days, police went out with cadaver dogs, ground-penetrating radar, and a backhoe, trying to find anything of note. Nothing was uncovered, and police have declined to say what led them to the search of the property in the first place. Brian continues to decline any involvement in Kemp's disappearance, but has said he and the other man with him were under the influence of alcohol and cocaine at the time. Other than this, he claims he dropped Kim off near her home before heading home himself. The other man that was with them that night hasn't been named. Furthermore, Brian holds steady that Kim was dropped off near her home by her request around 3.45 in the morning of May 10th. He claimed she was still upset about her plans having to be canceled and wanted to walk the rest of the way home. It would have been about a half mile from her home. Her father and one of her sisters don't believe this story, though. They say that Kim passed away only hours, maybe even minutes, following her leaving in the car with the man. Some say this could have been because of an accidental overdose, given one of the men said that they were under the influence of alcohol and cocaine that night. Afraid of the charges that would befall them, Kim was buried somewhere where no one could find her. 
but that is all just speculation. In May of 2019, News Center Maine had a small report on Kim's case following a lead that many believed to be promising. At the time of the report, police didn't say what the tip was, who reported it, or what the investigation would entail, but given that another dig was done at a different property the following month, it's safe to assume this is where that lead sent the investigation. The dig was more of an excavation, given it was a slab of concrete that was pulled up with the use of jackhammers. This slab, located on Route 4 in Livermore, was rumored to cover the burial site for Kim after she went missing. Just like the previous dig, however, nothing came up. Next month will be the 34th year Kim's case has gone unsolved. Her father still believes that someone knows what happened that night and is just too afraid to speak up. If you do know of anything that you believe can help police in this case, please do not hesitate to call the Maine State Police or the Livermore Falls Police Department. The case of Ayla Reynolds. As a warning, this case involves someone incredibly young. It begins just a week before Christmas on the 17th of December 2011 when 20-month-old Ayla Reynolds went missing. At the time, she was with her father, Justin DiPietro. She was placed here temporarily by a Maine Department of Human Services employee, Karen Small. It had been reported that Karen did not conduct a home visit before the decision to place Ayla in Justin's custody. Trista, Ayla's mother, who was said to be in the area at the time, was heading to rehab for a heroin addiction. Of course, that day, the 17th of December, Ayla was reported missing. This sparked the largest and most expensive investigation in Maine's history. The search, unfortunately, only turned up more questions. Ayla, who was last seen wearing green polka dot pajamas with the words Daddy's Princess across the front with a soft cast on her arm, was not found. Justin's sister, Alicia, and his girlfriend, Courtney Roberts, were also in the home at the time and gave depositions as late as 2017. A search of Justin's home was done a month following Ayla's disappearance, in which police found blood in the home. It was said to be over a cup of blood, and much more than a small cut would produce. Justin had been accused of abusing the child in the past, but maintained that he had nothing to do with it claiming he called the police after not being able to find Ayla the morning of the 17th. He says the last time he saw her was when he put her to bed that night. As time ticked on in this case, it just became more and more of a mystery. Justin reportedly passed a polygraph test, and Ayla, or her remains, have yet to be found. While she was declared legally deceased in 2017, her aunts Alicia and Ayla's grandmother believes she is still alive and was just abducted. An article from that year stated, The child's aunt and her grandmother tell WCSH-TV they know Ayla was taken from the home and she is still alive somewhere. Justin also believes she was abducted. Ayla's mother is not so hopeful. She believes Ayla's father played a bigger role in this than is being let on. Trista filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Justin in 2017 following the anniversary of Ayla's disappearance. 
If you're unsure of what something like that entails, like I was, I'll try to explain it in the simplest way possible. A wrongful death lawsuit can be filed against someone when someone in their care passes away due to some kind of neglectful act, medical malpractice, or even if the victims had their lives taken intentionally. For example, in the case of O.J. Simpson, while he was found not guilty, he was still sued in civil court for the deaths of Nicole Brown and Ronald Goldman. In Ayla's case, this would fall under negligence. If the suit were to go through, Ayla's mother would be up for some kind of financial compensation, but she has said that this isn't about money, but more about trying to find out exactly what happened on the 17th of December, 2011. If you do have any information that you believe can help in Ayla's case, please don't hesitate. Police have said that this is very much an active investigation and any tips are incredibly helpful. Report anything you know to the Waterville Police Department at 207-680-4700.